Hi, I'm Aubrey. Thanks for joining the podcast for Church of the Nazarene Harrisonburg. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast for the latest updates and new episodes. You can also join us each Sunday at 9 a.m. on Facebook Live or in person at 9 and 1030 in English or 1145 in Spanish. This year, we'll also have three Christmas Eve services. We'll have two indoor at 2 and 3.30 and one outdoor at 5.30. We hope to see you soon. It is Christmas, so Merry Christmas to you, and I hope that in this season you're finding joy. Uh, You're finding joy. Uh, I remember uh, growing up, I grew up in Richmond, um, many of you knew that, uh, Richmond, Virginia, and specifically Chesterfield County on the south side of Richmond, and uh, there was one particular place near where I grew up that I would always want to visit, I always want to see each and every Christmas. It was probably about 10 minutes uh, from where I grew up, and it was one particular house. Uh, in my mind as a little kid, it was like a giant mansion. Now, it was probably a pretty big house, but you know how that is. You ever do that? Uh, as a, a kid, something seems so big, and then you go back, like the house you grew up in, and you're like, wow, that was not that big. But I, I promise you, this was, it was kind of like a, an estate. At least it seemed like it. It was on the corner of two pretty busy roads there in Chesterfield County. And it, was, it was, had a, a big iron gate that surrounded the property. And inside were several acres and a large house. And uh, at Christmas time every year, this particular house would spend, they, they had to spend an inordinate amount of time setting up and preparing. And during the month of December, they had one of the most beautiful, uh, elaborate displays. Now, I know we live in 2020, and I know there's like shows now where it's like Christmas light wars or something. And these people that like, I don't know what planet they're from, but they, it was before that time, okay? It was before you just go on YouTube and watch any light show you wanted, and you're like, ah, that's no big deal. I'm telling you, I mean, this was a big deal, and it was not tacky. It was not inflatable Santa jumping out of a chimney. It was beautiful, thousands of lights, and I just remember the awe of that every year driving by. It would, like, stop traffic on a pretty busy road as people would pull over and try to watch this beautiful display of light, of light. And then I remember, I went off to college uh, at Eastern Nazarene College outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I met uh, Lauren there, uh, my wife now. She wasn't my wife when I met her. That's weird how you say that. But we got married, um, and and several years later, early in our marriage, uh, maybe one or two kids in the back seat, uh, we were in Richmond visiting my family for Christmas. And I remember saying, we've got to drive by the house. And I remember with anticipation, because even, even throughout college, when I came home to visit, every year the house was there, and every year the house was lit up, and every year it just was just as magical to me. But on this particular year, as I was talking it up to everyone in the vehicle, and we were driving over, I remember getting to the spot where year after year after year, I was lost in wonder, and I looked, and there was only darkness. I thought, what happened? <laughs> what happened? Because year after year after year, there's one thing I could count on during Christmas. It was the beautiful light in this particular year. There were no lights at all. It's almost as if, it's almost as if you can't really understand the beauty of light unless you understand 
true darkness. Because it was in that moment, I, I missed, I probably appreciated the lights more in that moment when they weren't there. When it was, it, it seemed more dark than ever before because I could picture in my mind year after year after year the beautiful display of lights that would light up the entire intersection. It reminds me a little bit of 1 Peter 2.9. When it says this, may you proclaim the excellencies who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the name of our series. We're calling it Christmas Light. Christmas Light. Last week we introduced this concept of light. Biblically, what does it mean? What does it mean from God's perspective? Why does it matter? Not just literal light, but that metaphor used throughout the story of God, beginning in Genesis 1, where God says the first thing we ever record God saying is, let there be light. That's significant, isn't it? And everything else was created from that. That was the first moment of creation. And everything else in creation came from that moment. Let there be light. And throughout the story of God, we see time and time again, this, that light means something. It matters to God. This week, we're going to focus on this idea that we really never appreciate light in its fullness until we know darkness. You can't really appreciate the beauty and the wonder of light unless you have known true darkness. And with that, we're going to turn back to Isaiah chapter 9. If you have your copy of Scripture, if you have your Version Bible app, we have a, an event set up there uh, with some ways that you can dive a little bit deeper into the Scripture, some notes for you to follow along. Uh, but Isaiah 9 is where we're going to be, and we started here last week, and we're going to start here again this week. We're about to read a prophecy. A prophecy meant uh, that these words were declared, they were written by the prophet Isaiah generations before they would ever be fulfilled. It, it's like a bold prediction, right? But, but not his prediction, it was God's truth, God's word. God had revealed this to Isaiah, and he, in turn, is revealing it to the people and, and promising this will come to pass. And this specific prophecy is a messianic prophecy, meaning it's prophesying not just anything, not just, um, hey, in the year 2020, there's going to be a pandemic. That would be weird. To say. Right, right. No, this is a prophecy of what? The Messiah, a messianic prophecy. So generations before Jesus would ever come, generations before there was ever Christmas, it wasn't even a thing yet. Isaiah writes these words in Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to focus on two important words from Isaiah chapter 9. I've got it on the screen here. Uh, but let's begin, and we're going to pause real briefly here. The first word in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, is the word nevertheless. Nevertheless, and before we get to the rest, and we covered this a little bit last week, and before we understand a little bit more about the importance of this prophecy, look again with me, that first word in Isaiah 9, verse 1 is nevertheless. Nevertheless, well, that's an important word, right? Because that word essentially overrides whatever came before it. And sometimes we read our scripture like each chapter and each word and each, but, but you have to understand that Isaiah, as he wrote these words, the chapter and the breakdown was kind of man's doing. It was, it was kind of a, a revisionist thing. We would read this as one continual um, prophecy, as one continual uh, written word. And so, and so to understand what nevertheless means, we have to go back to the end of Isaiah chapter 8 to understand what is this nevertheless really about. So turn the page back with me. I won't have it on the screen, but look at what Isaiah chapter 8 
says, verse 21 and 22, it says this, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. Who are they in Isaiah chapter 8? It's the people who have disobeyed God, who have turned their backs on the Lord, who have not chosen to follow the way of Yahweh. They, Isaiah 8 says, They'll be distressed and hungry, and they'll roam through the land. When they are famished, they will be enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless. I just want you to get that because Isaiah 8 is not encouraging. It's not, you're not going to print this Bible verse and put it on your refrigerator. This is not going to be your version Bible verse of the day, right? <laughs> distress. And yeah, they'll look toward the earth and they'll see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. Praise the Lord. Verses that, right? No, we want to get past chapter 8. We don't like that. It makes us feel uncomfortable. But what is Isaiah saying in chapter 8, verse 21 and 22? He wants, he wants the people of God to understand the true nature of darkness, the true nature of people who have turned their backs on God, and the reality of life in darkness. What does it say again in verse 22? They'll look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. They will be thrust into utter darkness. Just pause there for a minute. Imagine utter darkness. But then the hope of Isaiah chapter 9, because Isaiah chapter 9 begins with never the less something good is on the horizon. Chapter 8 is hard. Chapter 8 is real. Chapter 8 is darkness. But nevertheless, hope is on the horizon. Let's look at the next word, right? It says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. Gloom, right? What does that word gloom mean? Last week, we had a little bit of a Hebrew lesson, and I'm not really one to give a good Hebrew lesson. But last week, we talked about the Hebrew word for that word light is the word or, or. Right? And that's the Hebrew word light. And this week, let's look a little bit at the Hebrew word here for gloom. And the Hebrew word here for gloom is muaf. Muaf. And literally that word, it means like vexation, which is like a great SAT word, right? Try to pull that out in your everyday conversation and impress someone. Like vexation. What, what is vexation? To be cursed. To have no way out. To be lost and perplexed and confused and to have no hope. That's what it's saying here. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. Something in the future, prophesies Isaiah, that is different from the past. The punishment, the gloom, the same word here is used just a verse later in Isaiah chapter 8. But, but now Isaiah is saying something different is on the horizon. This has been your reality, the gloom of darkness. But nevertheless, Isaiah 9 says the promise of the prophecy, there will be no more gloom. Let's keep reading. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distressed. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. What is the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali? These were, these were two of the tribes, two of the first tribes to be conquered, two of the first tribes to be plundered and, and destroyed and, and really brought into exile. And so what is he saying? Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom 
for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. It's almost like he's reminding them of past judgment, of past gloom, of past destruction, but... Right? That word but, that's almost like a nevertheless word, isn't it? it? It's like acknowledging the gloom of the past. But, but, what does it say? In the future, he will honor Galilee and the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And then, and then it's as if Isaiah changes tenses. It's as if he's been speaking past tense of what had happened, of what was the reality, but now he, it's almost as if he looks towards the future and he says this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has on. No longer are we talking about the past, but now the present and the future reality. As Isaiah reminds us of the nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. You were in darkness, but now you have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. A light has dawned. Those exact, two exact opposites, right? Deep darkness, a light has dawned. Into the deepest darkness, a brightest light, the brightest light has dawned. Into the deepest fear, the brightest hope has dawned. Into the deepest distress, the brightest peace has dawned. Into the deepest hate, the brightest love has dawned. So, what does this have to do with us? What does this prophecy written years ago and finding its fulfillment in Christ, finding its reality in Christ, what does this have to do with us? Let's conclude today as we begin again in Isaiah 9. Let's turn now to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, we find, uh, what was Isaiah chapter 9? It was the before tense. It was the Jesus had not arrived yet. Christmas had not yet been the reality. But now in Ephesians 5, we see the apostle Paul writing in the aftermath of Christmas, in the shadow of not just Jesus's birth, but his death and resurrection. In Isaiah chapter 5 begins now in verse 8. That's where we're going to begin reading in verse 8. And the Apostle Paul says this, For you were once darkness. For you were once darkness. For you were once Isaiah chapter 8. Right? For you were once Isaiah chapter 8. And what is Isaiah chapter 8? They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and feel fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Paul says, for you were once that. Darkness. This makes it personal, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul, he's writing to believers here. He's not writing to sinners and people who have rejected the way of Christ. He's writing to the church of believers and he's saying to them, you were once darkness. You were once darkness darkness. I wonder if you could think about a time in your life that was darkness. I've shared this story many times, but 
when I, when I think of that, there, there are times in my life, the first time I can remember as an eighth grader, um, 14 years old, my mom uh, battling with severe depression and kind of questioning her purpose of life, not really wanting anything to do with me or my family anymore and dealing with the hurt of that and the pain and the confusion and the rejection. I can tell you I felt scared in those moments. And it wasn't a moment, it was a season, several years. It was the first real time in my life I doubted my faith. I questioned where is God in the midst of this? I felt hopeless, I felt anxious. I felt all alone. I knew the Lord. I put my faith in Christ. But in those days, it felt like darkness all around me. Have you ever been there? Paul is saying, you were once darkness. In fact, in fact, some of you today, some of you today, that might describe your present reality. Maybe you have faith in Christ. Maybe you know him. Maybe you've been following him faithfully. But today you would say, my present reality is, is gloom. I, I, it feels today in my heart so dark. We're going to keep reading in just a minute. But can we pause for a minute? Could we pause for a minute and pray? I want to pray for you today. If that's you and you're watching online, you're here in the room. And you would say, it feels dark today in my heart. That word gloom, right? That feels like my present reality. I just want to pause right now. Can we do that? Would you bow your heads with me? I want to pray for you. Maybe that's not you in the room today, but maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's not you watching, but it's someone else today, and you just feel like your world is so dark. Father in heaven, light of the world. For those of us today, that gloom is our reality. Darkness feels like not a past tense, but a present tense reality. Today, we pray in Jesus' name that you would come. We pray for those today in the room watching online that feel heavy with hopelessness. The circumstances around them feel crushing, overwhelming. Today, Lord, I pray for that person who may feel, they may be in a room filled with people, but they feel all alone. They may be watching, wherever they're watching from today, feeling isolated from everyone else around them. And today it feels so dark. I pray that the presence of your Holy Spirit would go now and minister to them. I pray that you would show up in the midst of, just like me as that teenage boy, you, you showed up for me. Even in the darkest moments of my life, I pray for that individual, for that person, for that family, for that marriage, for that teenager, for that child, for that grandma, or wh whoever it is today, I pray for them as they resonate darkness, I pray today, they could experience your light by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does Paul say? He says, for you were once darkness. 
you were once darkness, but, right? Right? That's a good word for us. You were once darkness, but that's like a nevertheless word, isn't it? That, that should remind us of what we just read, Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9. You were once darkness. You were once gloom. You were once in despair, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of life consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. I love that. I love that, right? right? We don't just avoid darkness. We don't just run the other way. Right? We expose the darkness in our lives. We expose the darkness within us and around us. That's what the light of the Lord does have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness expose them it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret we said all that to get us to verse 13 and 14 so don't miss it everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light this is why it is said wake up sleeper rise from the dead Christ will shine on you. Now that's a promise. That's a promise today. If you feel like you're walking in darkness, that's a promise. No matter what you have experienced, past tense, no matter what your present reality is, that's a promise today that Christ will shine on you. That's why Jesus said, Jesus didn't say become the light of the world. Jesus said, look, if you're walking in me, if you're abiding in me, if you bear my name, if you're following after me, you are the light. Not try to be the light, not try to shine. No, no, you are the light of the world. That's what Jesus said, because once you have experienced the light, you shine. You shine. Christ will shine on you. Christ will shine through you. That's what Ephesians 5 reminds us today. Maybe, maybe there's a deeper reason. Maybe there's a deeper reason why lights are everywhere at Christmas. Maybe you'll find them in our homes and on our mantles. In our inflatable tacky ornaments that lay across our yard. No judgment. Maybe you find them in our churches. Maybe you find lights at Christmas because somewhere deep inside, maybe without realizing it, we remember what darkness felt like. And we want nothing to do with that anymore. We remember just how hopeless it felt to experience darkness. And maybe, maybe without even realizing it, we long for light. We sing it, don't we, this time of year? Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. In John chapter 12, Jesus, I, I think he had Isaiah chapter 9 in his mind. I think he remembered what the prophet said about him generations before. John chapter 12, Jesus said, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. 
No one who believes in me, no one who identifies with me, who chooses not to identify with the way of the world, not to walk according to the kingdoms of this world, but to walk in alignment with me, to follow after me, to apprentice under me, is what Jesus would say. No one, no one who who walks with me, abides with me, should stay in darkness any longer. That might be one of the greatest Never the lesses in history. That, right, right? That, that Jesus said, no one, no one who believes in me should stay in the dark anymore. The light of Christ will shine on you. God entering the world. One of the biggest mysteries. The biggest mysteries. I was listening to a song often in this season. I was playing it yesterday while we were making dinner and And the artist wrote it this way. He said, royalty robed in the flesh he created. The architect inside the plan. The author climbed inside the page. God became a man. And there's this question I have every year when I come to Christmas. And I've been through a lot of Christmases, you know. I've sat through a lot of church in my time, Advent season after Advent season, but there's one question every year, and, and actually, the question grows louder in my brain the older I get. The question, as we come to the Christmas season, as I, as I look upon the manger, as I look at Jesus born for us, God becoming a man, the question I have year after year after year is why? God, why, God, why would you do that? Why would Jesus put on rags instead of glory. The Bible said he made himself nothing. Nothing. He was at the right hand of the Father, experiencing the fullness of his glory, but he made himself nothing. Why Why would he do that? Why would Jesus give up everything to be a baby in a manger, to be fully dependent upon a woman, a man, to care for him. Why would God the Father do what no one else would or could do, sacrifice his son for our sin? Why would the light ever come into such darkness? The answer is because that's where you were. I play Joseph in the live nativity, the stepfather to the Messiah. Some rather big shoes to fill, or sandals as it may be. As a method actor, um, I have to experience what the character experienced, you know, in order to play the role. It takes a lot of effort, so I do what I can to get my body in shape. Sometimes on my lunch break, I'll just go into Joseph position. So I'm thinking of renting a donkey. No. No, no, look, uh, we would just ride it, okay? No. No, no, look, just around town, okay? I just want to get a feel for what Joseph must have gone through. I'm not going to ride a donkey through town. (gasps) Babe, look, Brando shadowed gangsters, okay? Winona stole a purse. Larry 
actually was a cable guy. I, I need this, okay? I need to know what it was like to serve the mother of God. You want to know what it was like to serve? Yes. Then serve me by setting the table. Throughout the years, I have adopted the lifestyle of many notable characters. I even uh, played Judas in our church's gospel musical rendition of Happy Feet. I actually wrote that one. Um, it's called Happy Feet Washing. Lord, why? Why would you put me through this? Do you understand, God? This is difficult. The people around town, they are talking. They're asking why I would marry a woman who's bearing another man's child. What did I do, do Lord? Hmm, God love him. But he sounds like the guy from The Fiddler on the Roof. Why? She said that? I, I sound nothing like Tevia. I played Tevia in high school. I'd know the difference. She, she sounds like Fran Drescher. Not the voice, but the... And he's starting to scare the children. Dad, I don't want to do this again. Uh... Well, come on, buddy. Just from the top. The part about the end. No room. Go ahead. I'm sorry, sir, but there's no room in the end for you. What? You're telling me that my pregnant wife and me, you're going to leave us out in the streets? We may die out there. Is that what you want to happen? Is that... Buddy? He's fine. He's fine. Um, this is Travis, my son. He will be playing the role of Jesus. Even larger sandals to fill. F figuratively. He has very, very small feet. It is a live nativity. Um, so we are on our feet for five hours each night, uh, the seven days leading up to Christmas. It's um, not so much of a physical challenge for me. I played sports in high school. Um, it's more of a spiritual challenge. Really? Why? It just is. Where's my baby Jesus? Because Daddy's ready for the show. What's wrong? I couldn't do it. What? What are you talking about? I couldn't give up my son. Honey, they're counting on you. No, um, if I were God, I couldn't give up my boy. The world would be out of luck. Thank you again for listening today. If you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at a As soon as you're done listening, 
please subscribe to this channel for updates and new episodes.